Satori magazine is a space for thought-provoking content. By exposing ourselves to ideas, thoughts, experiences and life lessons, we might stumble across something which gives us new insight or a change of perspective. I'm Lawrence Rice, and I've been chatting to people about life, inspiration, the universe, and whatever else pops up along the way. What you're about to hear is the edited results of those recordings. The voices you will hear belong to Pico Ayer, Lawrence Torcello, Elisha Goldstein, BJ Miller, Harney Pal, and Lynn Didana. Today's main contributor is BJ Miller. If any listeners don't know, I believe a significant and defining part of your story is that you lost three of your limbs as a 19-year-old when climbing onto the roof of a stationary train with some buddies in your sophomore year at university. It, it is. You're right about that. It's been, a, it's been a very defining characteristic. If you were to meet me on the street, you'd notice in two seconds. And mm. it's also the sort of the, the, the kernel the seed that from which all the work, all of my professional work has, has flown. Um, yeah, there's much to say about that experience, but that is where a lot of things pivoted. A lot of things started in a way mm. and a lot of things kind of continued in a way. Um, but that is a fair place to start the clock in terms of where, I, how, how I've taken my professional life and much of my personal life ever since. Mm. And one thing that interested me, uh, was I believe that the you changed your majors uh, when going back to university. Uh, mm -hmm. You changed your majors to art history. Did did you choose it to gain a new perspective, or what, what was yes. the inspiration? Yeah, yes. I mean, you put your finger on it immediately. I mean that uh, I had been studying. This was so sophomore year of college. And in our typical the typical university here, you you have to declare your concentration. Um, so midway through your sophomore year, at some point in your sophomore year. So I was headed, I had been studying Chinese language. Oh, and wow. Okay. I, yeah, I had, I don't know where I was going. I mean, I was very much in the liberal arts mode of just studying things because they were interesting, not really having a sense of where I was going to take any of it. Mm. Um, so, but I, I was interested in China. Tiananmen Square had just happened the summer before uh, I went off to university and it was on my mind and anyway, and I was enjoying it, but, but then I got in this injury, this, this accident, this, hmm. uh, this electrical burn thing happened and I was in a burning it for many months and, you know, sort of um, just watching my mind, the, it, my thoughts shifted much more to things like, well, you know, what am I now? Who who am I now? Uh, where do I go from here? Who will want to be with me going out from here? Like, you know, the sort of big things that you might consider existential questions. Yeah. Um, so my mind shifted to this uh, issue, questions of identity and why and why not. In that, in conversation with uh, one of my best friends growing up who would come visit me in the hospital, we found ourselves talking about those things a lot. And he had, he was concentrating in philosophy and art history in his studies. And we just got to talking about art more and more kind of organically, as you say. 
and it found it was scratching an itch for me. It was sort of thinking, thinking why human beings create from their experiences. Yeah. It was a very easy overlay or because you're easy to transpose that kind of that basic notion of creating from the raw material of life hmm. something that wasn't there before you made it yeah um and that that basic setup sounded well gosh that sort of sounds like what i'm trying to do here and it just was a it, so it ended up being a hunch that there was something for me in studying art i would be studying humanity and in studying humanity i'd be studying some some I'd be studying some way of being or a way of looking at the world or way of pulling myself forward through this this weird place I ended up in. Hmm. So that was the hunch. And you know what, man? It, it ended up really actually being true. I really studying art just allowed me to do all these things and ponder my own existence and come up with a response to it. Yeah. To my search, to my circumstances, to my situation. And I will say one more, so we can talk about anything in more detail, but it was also the act, of course, of learning how to see uh, yeah. and learning perspective and how malleable that was and how humans can move that lens. We can change how we see things much, much more readily than we can change things. Hmm. And that seemed really good to me. That seemed like, you know, I was looking at a body that I would love to change, but couldn't. And so finding new ways to come at it, new angles to come at it, you know, shifted my experience, shifted my love of life, shifted my place in the world. Yeah. So that's how it played out. It was a very good hunch. I was very fortunate for that hunch. I, I think there's a lot of lateral thinking that goes on with artists and mm. le- like you say, learning how mm. to see. And it's mm. not just about um, sort of understanding what you're looking for. It is that kind of like connecting things which you didn't used to see a connection and suddenly it can, yeah. so, can seem so simple. And um, just realising right that on. you can step outside of boxes, you know, things like that. Yes. Yeah. Amen. It's mm. a wonderful realization to stumble on. What a, I mean, you just, so in a way you just named freedom of a kind, you know, that's, yeah, yeah. that's pretty big stuff. Yeah. I mean, the, I, I love, one thing I always think of is just always blows my mind at the beauty of it. You ever see someone draw on like a whiteboard, they draw a square mm-hmm. and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. yeah, I get that. And then you draw those little lines going off to one side and then suddenly when you fill that other square in you're like oh wow that's like yeah that always impresses me i think that's fantastic little illusion there um but it's also great because i always i studied illustration i did graphics Mm. at um like a levels which is pre-university did a foundation Uh year in art and then did illustration uh, for my bachelor of arts and i always put on my cv and i generally believe that it's given me new ways or, or different ways of solving problems so it's really i believe that yeah it's really lovely to hear you i think i'm immediately amazed that you were able to make that choice at that age and like make that be aware of what you were doing and make that choice for nothing more than that mm. like learning about a way of seeing yeah 
I will give myself a little credit for that. You know, that was, that was, that was a, like I say, a good, it was a hunch, but it felt there was a visceral tug that felt right. And I was very much another thing that was happening for me lying in the burning it where there's not much to do, you know, and Mm. you're very much in the mind of revisiting your body and what it's for and what it senses and what it feels. And um, so in a way uh, it helped me listen to other sounds in me, including my, my instinct or my gut or an intuition or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Which ended up being some itself, something of an aesthetic experience of following that thread. And so there was a, there was a kernel of some knowing some sense of things in there Hmm. that was cool to find. And, and I also have to give my buddy, Justin, a ton of credit. We were explicitly together. He was, you know, we were, leading each other down this road and pinging off each other into art and into philosophy in large part, because he was ahead of me studying those things. So I must give him credit too. He was, uh, he, those, those conversations besides being interesting, I guess the proof was already there and that they were, they felt therapeutic. I felt better about my situation after those conversations. So I had some proof right there. Yeah. 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 And yeah, that sometimes it's so important that having something to expose you to to a little bit of a taste of something, and that allows you to see some of that world which you wouldn't have seen, and and that's maybe yeah, that's ended up being something which has shaped your life. Well, absolutely. I mean, and to your point, you know, you have to get in front of these experiences. You have to be in a situation where the experiences can happen. Um, mm. Meaning it's, you know, it's what you just described there laws is also a reason for me to pull myself out outside, get out, get out, get out of bed so that I can be in front of experiences or participate so that things have a chance of happening. Yeah. 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 Um, you have to put yourself so, in the universe and, uh, yeah. and then it can show you yes. where to go sometimes. Yes. You have to, you have to, you have to, you have to participate somewhere, somehow. These are all sort of relational experiences in so many ways. So you got to be relating to something. It can be just about anything. Um, So that's right. And that was also a way this became uh, a, a reason for being, I don't mean that in a very dramatic way, but it was, it allowed me to, um, well, even if I was looking at a day filled with difficulties of just getting to the bathroom or back, if I could see that as an experience, well, I could kind of get into it. You know, I didn't, I didn't, it helped me not compare, well, I just got to get my ass to the bathroom and that's going to take me an hour and a half. Mm. Mm. I'm not, you know, I wasn't, it helped me not be in the mindset of, well, gosh, I wish I were, you know, out in the garden or I wish I was at the movies or something like my friends are. I was just sort of like, okay, this is what's in front of me. I'm going to work with this. Hmm. And I mean, I don't make that, make this oversimplified. I mean, I spent plenty of time feeling sorry for myself and wallowing in the things that weren't happening too. Yeah. But this way of thinking, you just kind of keep, we keep stumbling on it together here, Laws. It was, you can see how it was a, it gave me a way, a, a, a reason to move, a reason to get out of bed, a reason to try. Yeah. And that were as the, the, the normal ways, the normal compulsions in me 
didn't have so much purchase lying in it, burning it. But this one did, this aesthetic experience. It was a way to keep going. As I go along in my adult life, and this has been, um, it's sort of become necessary after my dad passed away a couple of years ago that I really, that really forced me to think I, I need to put myself forward. I need to be selfish in order to grieve. And I need to even on an hourly basis to check in and be like, hey, do I want to go to this? Do I want to go there? Because if not, maybe it's okay to just say, I think it was the first time in my life. Sorry, I apologise for this slightly rambling. Oh no, please. Um, uh, monologue here now, but um, I felt like it was the first time where I had a valid excuse to just say, "I don't want to do that. I want to do this," and I'm partly, I guess, lucky and grateful that the one thing that experience brought out in me was this sort of closer link to to myself if that makes sense and yeah I wondered if you had any further advice on me for how I can keep in touch with myself Larry oh gosh um, <laughs> apologies well, again. I, I, I think you know I, I think as you describe uh the the loss of your father as sort of opening up this possibility for you to if I understand you correctly to um reevaluate uh, your immediate priorities and sort of give yourself permission to maybe say no to certain things that you would rather not do. I, I wonder, because, you know, I, I also, I also experienced a loss of, of a father and I never, I don't think I felt like I was truly an adult until I lost, <laughs> I lost my, my uh, my father and my mother, but there's something I think that um, happens about my father. I lost him first, and I think there's something about the death of a parent that that makes a psychological switch. Sometimes that mm -hmm. you feel like now you are the adult and you get to make decisions that maybe you wouldn't, out of habit, even yeah. uh, considered making before. I, I don't know. I think there, there's something. It's a tragedy to lose a, a parent, especially when you're close to your parents. But mm. um, one consolation, perhaps, is that you do gain some sort of, I think, firmer ground in yourself if, if things have gone well in your life yes. up until that point. Mm. And you feel more comfortable with those decisions. I, I think, yeah, I, I, maybe it comes back to that uh, fear of death um, that I think so many of us have uh, when you lose a parent there's one less barrier in your way to death like it becomes yeah. it becomes more more of a reality for you yeah and that also might empower you to be able to make some clear decisions about what you should and should not be doing at any given time but and i also felt and still do that it was a bittersweet but like there's a, a beautiful poetry in the fact that I would now love to talk and have a conversation with my dad, which mm -hmm. I would not have been able to have if it wasn't for him passing away. 
and I will never <laughs> be able to have this conversation because it didn't exist before right. while he was still here. And yeah, you know, I think it maybe that is exactly like you say. That's that sort of passing of the torch, and and I guess for me, it it, it comes back a little bit to acceptance as well that I'm able maybe now to accept that I won't be perfect and to just stop trying because you're just pushing a massive boulder up a hill with that. (laughs) And, um, I got very, I get very frustrated by making the same mistakes and just actually realizing that those mistakes are fine and I will always Mm -hmm. make them and, Mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. Yes. Yeah. I I think that's one of the the things that's, that are, that's really important for us, I believe, to get comfortable with, with being, being ignorant of things, not knowing. And in a way, this relates back to the pressures of social media. I think we have more pressure now to, to feel like we have something to say. And, you know, this is old Socratic wisdom, but I, I, I think it's really important to, to get, get back to that place where we could feel perfectly comfortable admitting that we don't know something. It's really freeing. Jesus said to this woman, if I give you water, you will never thirst again. What can I do with those doubts when they do hit? Um, so I'm a big fan of first having the perspective that doubt, doubting is a part of pushing the, of pushing the edge of, of learning or what you were capable of before and pushing the edges of expanding your ability and your capabilities. So when you hit that edge, something that you don't know, you never experienced before, um, and you're trying to kind of get to that next space, your mind's going to doubt, and and it's a healthy thing. It it thinks it's a healthy thing. Your brain's saying like, well, hold on a second. What happens if you don't do this? Or maybe you can't do this. It's trying to protect you. Mm. And so it's a natural response. The problem is, is when we really buy into the negative parts of the doubt, then that can keep us stuck. Doubt isn't always bad. Doubt sometimes, again, it's, it's just trying to discern. It's trying to show you all the reasons this might be a catastrophe or mm. why you aren't able to do this. And, and so we, if we know that's part of the process, yeah. okay. then, and, and, if, and by the way, again, just to reinforce, talking with other people about it who are also creatives or doing whatever you're trying to do, they'll also reinforce for you, oh, yeah, I go through doubt all the time. And all of a sudden that that sort of neutralizes the impact a little bit of it or at least lessens it. Yes. So, oh, okay, I see. This is, this is part of the process. Yeah, so you yes. get perspective. That's the first part to have the perspective. Hmm. And you might realize when it comes and just hits you from time to time, and the moment you realize it, 
you say to yourself like, okay, there that is, doubting, doubting, doubting. You can say it a few times. You might notice the underlying emotion that's there, that's in your body. You might notice there's fear there mm. or just the feeling that this is just really hard mm -hmm. and you kind of feel like giving up. So you notice the resistance that might be there and how it might feel physically in your body. And you might just take a moment with it and say, yep, this is tough. I get it. This is a tough moment and it's part of this journey. Mm -hmm. I expected this. Doubt's a part of this whole thing. Everyone experiences it as a part of being human and mm. part of this process. So the question is like, what do I need to support myself in moving forward now? Mm. And so then you might come to the decision that what I need is to talk to a mentor, someone who's a little further along the path than me. What do I need is to connect to my friend who's been through this process before. What I need is to journal this whole thing out. Yeah, yeah. What I need, like, what do I, yeah, what's my, pro so you're, you're looking at, you're naming it, normalizing it, and then getting some insight to move forward. You know, this is, uh, sometimes it's all a lot more simpler than we, mm. we think. Like we're, we're not, we're not as complicated as we think sometimes. Sometimes it's just simpler. We experience stress and pain we experience doubt in the face of uncertainty or in the face of pushing ourselves further than we're used to. Um, you know, during hard moments, we need to understand, we need to have perspective on the journey. We need to recognize and normalize the difficult moments that are part of being human. And we need to understand and get better at understanding what we're needing to be able to heal, be in balance, um, move towards the goal that we're wanting and and we have to understand we're not alone mm. in it we don't have to be alone in it and we're social creatures and animals and we're always that way and 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 it's really helpful to start being in contact with people who have your back and want the best for you and and are inspiring to you and that's going to impact your own level of energy and motivation in life and it's always been that way throughout the course of human history. And we've sort of lost it in this latest part. You know, when that, I can't remember who wrote that song. I'm trying to remember it. The Little Boxes song where it's like, Little boxes on the hilltop. Little boxes made a ticky-tack. Little boxes on the hilltop. And they all look just the same. Mm -hmm. And so we're, we're building these little boxes. And we're all separate from each other now. And it builds this kind of like visual representation of being disconnected and so we internalize that and we think oh we're just kind of like it's just my life and oh no maybe it's just my life and a couple people in my family and you don't realize that there's billions of people out there and there's a lot of people that if you made contact with them or you can find them and there's different there's a whole lot more communities now that you can have access to that would really lift you up and keep you motivated and make you feel more inspired more implicitly and move you in the direction of the direction you want to move into.
I was talking to a life and confidence coach uh, who was talking about the idea of, uh, I was asking him how he deals with himself. And he was saying that he's able now to, if he's having a bad day, sort of set himself as, a, away from that and understand that he's experiencing himself having a bad day. Whereas, you know, mm -hmm. I think maybe when I'm a teenager, you just, all you are, all of those emotions, you can't separate. And, mm -hmm. and so part of that, I guess, is, 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 accepting uh and it, it well yeah experiencing yourself so i guess that's what it sounded like a little bit there that you're able instead of to be so angry of all the things you're missing and this hour that it takes you to the bathroom you're actually experiencing mm -hmm. your yourself uh, maybe at more of a i don't know sub subjective wait no. Yeah, right. Sort of, yes, but sort of objectively, yes. And I think there are a lot of people are talking about things like intersubjectivity, even with one's like intrasubjectivity. But anyway, we can get wonky on it. Huh. But bottom line is, I think you're pointing to something that whether I think a lot of paths will get you there, um, whether it's a contemplative, like a Buddhist tradition, I'm, sh I'm sure speaks to the things we're talking about mm -hmm. now. Yeah. You could read people like more pop psychology, spiritualists, Eckhart Tolle, I think is, uh, makes this point. I think, yep. you know, you, there are a lot of us who are going to find our way. These are, these are truisms. And so they're not, ref they're not mine or yours. These are things, these are very, these are themes that humans they're paying attention seem to keep bumping up against. Yeah. And I think one that you just pointed to, which is yes, be in the moment. It's such that you are experiencing it in real time. Mm -hmm. um, yes. However you get yourself to do that, whether it's meditation or psychedelics, or I, I don't know, whatever allows you to actually inhabit your body in real time, do that. Mm. There's that. And there's the ex knowing that you're having an experience, this sort of yeah, perhaps a meta level, some metacognitive, some other layer mm. that's related that one can't be going on without the other. Yeah. And yet you appreciate yourself as one of many of, as well as a piece of a puzzle because you're looking at the puzzle. I think both I, I I'll fumble. I don't have the words to get any, I, I don't, but something in there is is elemental and however you get yourself to there as a human being i kind of come to believe that that is an essential human experience good morning have a good day you too thank you good morning have a good day i think meditation is a great way to start um and there are many different kinds of meditation um find the one that speaks to you um, but I think what meditation and mindfulness do is they are able to um, give you some space either for that kind of inquiry to ask those questions of who am I really um, and to also notice that everything changes, right? So, hmm. for example, my body that I am that I have right now is literally changing every second because of all the reactions in my in my cells, but you know, it's, it's very different from a week ago or a year ago, certainly from when I was a child. So, so that's not constant. And then you start to notice your thoughts, 
which again, you, you may be really identified or grasping onto. And then you notice, wait a second, you know, this conversation is eliciting a, a, a certain stream of thinking. And then when I end this conversation and go and interact with somebody else, there's a whole new stream of thinking. And so where did, the, where did these thoughts go? Or my beliefs that I have today might be very different from the beliefs that I had 10 years ago. And so mm. that's constantly changing. Our emotions change from hour to hour, minute to minute. And so starting, but there's this awareness or this consciousness that's aware of these changes um, that's stable. You know, you, it, it, even as we get older, we sort of have this sense of, well, my body is getting older, but who I am yeah. sort of feels constant, right? Like yeah. that awareness of, of it has been steady. And so I think meditation and mindfulness and compassion practices really give you that space to take a deeper dive and, um, yeah, just spend some time thinking about these questions. And, and it, again, through these practices, through the breath work, which, which has a very physiologic, very tangible, very mecha mechanistic mm. change um, and influence on how it's able to shift your emotions very directly yeah. uh, in the moment uh, is very helpful. Um, but yeah, so, so these practices will, are a good way to start uh, and you start to sort of notice that, oh, it's okay, you know, I can hold uh, my emotions a little more lightly. I don't have to take myself too seriously. Yeah, no, I'm happy to. I really am happy to talk about anything in this spirit with you. I mean, these are all, these are all experiences. These are all, hmm. yeah, so I'm happy to talk about anyway. But anyway, I mean, you're also right. There's a fair amount of pain in the Zen hospice experience for me and many others. Um, it is, it was, it is a fascinating place. It used to be a place they've had to sell the hospice house uh, right. more recently. So there's no, it is no longer a place. Right. But a lot of people would have told you that Zen hospice was never a place. It was a spirit. It was a way of caring. Mm. And there's plenty of truth to that. <clears throat> and it's now the Zen Caregiving Project. It's still in existence. Roy Reamer, a wonderful, wonderful man, runs that program. So they're still going. They've just changed their shape. Right. Um, but when my time there, it had just it had been closed down because it started in this sort of countercultural model of the 80s. It sort of flew under the radar. It didn't have a license and was a lot of at that time, everyone was interested in giving the middle finger to the healthcare system, especially around the AIDS crisis. Right. The, you know, medicine had completely you know, had fallen on its face and people were pissed at the institution and people were happy to go around it. And Zen Hospice Kit was sort of born in that kind of a fire. So then, so we can talk about this for, I don't, I'll, I'll try to be careful with time here, but essentially, eventually that kind of caught up with them. The state needed it to have a license, et cetera. It had to close itself down for, I think, seven or eight or nine years. Hmm. And the board had to think about what it wanted to do and blah, blah, blah. And so it had just reopened when they hired me to be the executive director. 
Um, and so it was coming in a place where it had been closed with reopening. And it had this interesting kind of relationship to medicine that I understood. I mean, I was a medical doctor. I was a sort of a countercultural doctor, but I was still a doctor. I knew very well of medicine's ills. I was in medicine to try to change, in part, to try to change those ills. Hmm. Um, and so anyway, when I started working there, a lot of these kind of things became very uncomfortable. Um, I felt uncomfortable in the organization as a, as a medical person, even though as, uh, as non-medical as I was. I felt uncomfortable in that role as, uh, as not a Buddhist practitioner, not a Zen pr practitioner, someone deeply sympathetic and moved by the, the tradition. But I can't say that I am a Buddhist. And mm. it felt wrong, even though the board, everyone assured me this was a secular organization, blah, blah, blah. So a lot of sort of things kind of were playing out in those five years that I were there, was there, excuse me. And a lot of amazing things happened there. I mean, I learned so, so much. Um, and, and the organization went through a lot. So I guess what I'm leaning to is there were some internal dynamics there that were tricky that I think caught up with the organization. You have to kind of reconcile. Do you hate medicine? Or are you going to work with medicine, for example? Mm. Are you secular or are you meant to be a devout Buddhist tradition? These are, these are important questions that never got really resolved. But bigger the and 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 sort of actually I'm heading towards a more the order is towards the things that were most pressing for me were mm. I realized uh, an executive director's job was entirely raising money. My job all the time was meeting with people to try to raise money, and that got tedious and exhausting and pulled me away from the bedside. The things that I really knew how to do and cared to do. Mm. So that had run its course. I realized I'm not God's gift to administration and I'm not a great fundraiser. And even if I had been okay at it, I certainly didn't love it. Yeah. And so those things had run their course and I longed to get back to something a little bit more direct, the care. Mm. Um, so you put all that together. And finally, also the last little piece is that TED talk that you mentioned really had just come out and I was starting to have a lot of invitations to do wider work in the world, speak, speak to more, more broadly. Yeah. And that felt like the more pressing need in the world and something that I could do something about versus be a mediocre uh, boss at a place like as important as in hospice. Yeah. 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 Well, that, that's what I, I kind of thought you might say. And I'd kind of read that you you were starting to look into this, or you started then the Center for Dying and Living. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And is that still a thing? Can you tell me about that? That's sort of. It's the, the sweet little thing that we hadn't. So it's so yes, it still exists, but it's a little bit on hold. So. So the Center for Dying and Living, one of the ideas coming, so after Zen Hospice, I spent the subsequent, that was 2016, January, early 2016, I left there. And I spent the year since uh, working on that book with Shoshana Berger and, mm. and, and, our, and our assistant, Sonia Dolan. So A Beginner's Guide at the End, that took four years to write. You know, I kept my clinical work going at the university. Uh, a couple of days a week. So I was seeing patients that way. I was working on this book and I was doing a ton of public speaking because I was riding the wave that was under me in the spirit we were talking about earlier. Yeah, yeah. And I knew those to be important things. Um, I knew I was really was interested mostly in culture change and getting, helping to cultivate 
do my part to cultivate a society where you don't have to be embarrassed to be sick or ashamed to die, where you can count on support, where human beings are interested and dare to look at their truths of their realities and actually deal with the inevitabilities of life. I knew I wanted to participate in, in making that world the world. So it, so I was following that impulse to be out in public. And so we rode that for a while and uh, started to hit on this idea that um, the world really needed with so much information flowing. One of the things that the, this, this conversation needed was a good curated source of information that yeah. people are left to get a diagnosis and just to go Google their disease and then find all sorts of unfiltered information that pulls them 8 million ways and in some ways actually does damage. Yeah. So we were leaning into that moment, that the trouble of that, of this moment of information, unbridled information being a problem rather than a gift. And so the Center for Dying and Living became this nonprofit that we were going to create. We did create as a way to capture people's stories, a place to be seen and heard, but people could write in and tell us anything of their experience, a place to, and to build a database of people's experiences. Meanwhile, we were going to try to raise money to build a big search engine to begin to curate and vet information flows across the internet around anything to do with illness or caregiving, disability, et cetera. So it was meant to be this huge library, this trustable library, this specific library. Mm. So we'd just gotten started and then the pandemic hit. And then we realized actually raising money for something like that was going to be very tricky right now. And what the world needed was direct, direct support. And so we started mental health and kept Center for Dying and Living on the shelf as a nonprofit and started Metal Health as a straight ahead company and have been seeing, you know, clients ever since. That's been going on for now about two years. That's interesting because I guess you're you're following you started off there following you realizing you were drifting away from what was important to you. Uh, and mm-hmm. and the, the the world was kind of calling you with with these invitations to um mm-hmm. these these you know public speaking opportunities. And then the world also stepped in as it did with everyone with the pandemic and mm-hmm. pushed everything somewhere else. So that's mm-hmm. that's a real mishmash of being in the universe, isn't it? There, It sure is. And it kind of gets at this, ever in this song and response with the world happening, and it's all happening in real time. And mm-hmm. one of the things I've learned from working with patients who are dealing with illness or death is that sort of agility, that ability to move with reality that is moving, whether you want to or not, is a really important way through all this kind of stuff, is a really important skill to develop. And so I'm trying to live that way myself. Yeah, uh, yeah. And professionally too. Yeah. Yeah. And it's one of, well, the first guest I interviewed for this Atori podcast was an international travel writer called Pico Ayer. Who's oh, one of, yeah. He, I love Pico. I love him too. Having met him, he's the most wonderfully yeah. charming man. Isn't he? Uh, yeah, he's he's it's so charming and and really yeah. interesting. And one of the things I'm really on this this buzz about um, ha- having a conversation with the universe. And he mm. highlighted to me, he was like, listening to the universe is you know as important, if not more, than than talking to it. And I was like, wow, he's he's Amen. so right. And I mean, I think that's what you're doing there, right? And 
totally, certainly trying to, aspiring to. I still talk too much, more than I should, more than I listen. You know, yeah, there's, I definitely got some work to do, but you're darn right. That is my aspiration is to follow that exactly. And mm. by the way, palliative care, when it's done correctly, is, you know, like 80% listening. I mean, that is, if I had to pick a skill, I am absolutely in, in Pico's church there. Yeah. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I constantly hold this, this, this paradox, right? There's the, the, the part of me that wants to understand and get to the root of every single mechanism possible. Mm. And that's an ongoing endeavor. And I know it's a futile endeavor, but it's, it's also very interesting and it's fascinating. And I think all the advances that we make in many different branches of science um, are, fan- are wonderful. It's, it's improving human lives in so many significant ways um, and on the other hand I completely realize that I know very little and I am really happy to just take in the, the mystery and the wonder and the awe and not try to explain uh, the magnificence of the universe and just experience it Mm. a little more fully as well. There won't be any pagan religion. There won't be any pagan religion anymore. There'll be just the truth. Jesus is the truth, guys. Trust in it, guys. Believe in it. Jesus loves you, guys. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you, guys. Enough to send preachers out to tell you that you're living not according to his word. You're being deceived. You're being distracted by the world. You've allowed the devil to take you into so people i always feel the need to say this because otherwise because the things i talk about sometimes can feel heady and i feel and people confuse me with someone who's well read i'm really not well read (laughs) i'm a terrible reader i'm very very slow and and for me some there's just other ways to get at the feeling of being alive so but i still i still there's a lot to love about books uh, but I just always feel the need to caveat that because sometimes I feel like I'm coming off as an intellectual when I'm not. Um, oh, hey, man, if but, you'd rather recommend a movie, sorry, I, I guess I've already sent no, you a no. question, but you're welcome to <laughs> no, recommend no, a, a thing. No, no, I love the, I still love the question. <laughs> I don't know why I have, I feel like this responsibility to caveat. Though. <laughs> um, but no, no, because I have an answer. There's a book. It's oh, wow. so apropos what we have been talking about, mm-hmm. but from a, So it's by John Dewey, who is a 20th century psychologist uh, and philosopher and educator and all sorts of cool things. He's a real mountain of a dude who just had a, from what I can tell, just a beautiful spirit and and lived this sort of integrated, synthesized life that you and I are, 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 I know I'm groping for. Mm. Um, So anyway, this book called uh, Art as Experience is a simple little book where he just sort of lays out this idea of the aesthetic, um, which has often been this sort of philosophical, again, this heady thing, but he really brings it down to earth and gives us a sort of a language and a, a, a lattice work to understand aesthetics as, as being one of these ways you can compel yourself through the world. Okay. And he defines the aesthetic as anything that intensifies an immediate sense of living, which I just love. So anyway, art is experienced by John Dewey and also anything by John Dewey. Thank you very much for that. And my final question, mm-hmm. can you tell me about a moment 
from your life、uh, where you have experienced Satori or enlightenment or a change of、mm. mind or heart or any way you, you see fit to,、mm. to translate that question? Well, I'll just go with the most recent because these kinds of things happen often, which are basically, again, boy, this is in a sense a very tidy hour we've spent together because every point we're talking about kind of reifies the point, the, the sort of uber point.、Mm. And so yesterday, I, I think I mentioned to you before we started the recording, I was, I've been in the hospital the last two weeks and just got home yesterday or the day before yesterday now. So I was in the hospital having surgery on my leg. You know, it's all fine. But, you know, hospitals are essentially sensory deprivation places. They don't reward your aesthetic existence really at all. In fact, they tend to bombard it. And I have a lot of problem with that.、Um, I think that's a very that's a important cue that healthcare is missing.、Um, the environment itself could be such a different experience. Anyway, go off on that. Don't. You're going to have to hang on for hours if I go off down that road. But all that is to say, I was coming home from the hospital、uh, and this non emergent ambulance transport. These two young guys who are so nice,、uh, these guys were heading to fireman school and we got to talk. And at first, I didn't want to talk to anybody, but we got to talking because we just sort of the air lined up、mm. um, and we were just feeling on the same planet at the same time, helping each other, caregiving, care receiving. It didn't seem to matter which side you were on. It was just an exchange going on. It was very beautiful.、Mm. And the Satori underneath it, the, what Cultivated what galvanized that mindset, that mode, what made it all possible was the I was having this aesthetic reverie of being outside the hospital and driving from San Francisco back to my home in Mill Valley over the Golden Gate Bridge and looking out the back of the ambulance at it. It's so stupidly friggin' beautiful around here, especially spring had just hit since I was in the hospital and seeing everything in blossom and the light. I mean, I was. An absolute reverie just in the back of an ambulance talking to these guys, and the whole thing came together as a piece, and that was that. that, was that, that, was that, that, was that, that, that.